Amen. Amen. You go and have a seat. And as you get in your seat, uh, open up your Bible to Psalm 88. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning in Psalm 88. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you're going to find one under a chair nearby you. And I would encourage you to get that and get that open in front of you because I want you to follow along with us today. Um, If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. That's our gift to you. We would love for you to walk out of here today with a copy of God's Word. Well, what comes to mind when you think of the word lament? Oftentimes, we use the the phrase lament to refer to a, a grief or a sorrow. So we might say, I lament the loss of that friendship. Sometimes we use it to express regret. Wow, I lament that I didn't say something to her after the event today. And and both of those uses are directionally correct, but they're not complete. Because you see, lament is a language that's been given to us by God as a way to bring our sorrows to him. And the Bible is full of examples of lament. The most obvious is the book of Lamentations that was written by the prophet Jeremiah. But the Psalms are full of lament. In fact, one-third of the Psalms are considered songs of lament. And even in the Gospels, we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, on a couple of occasions lamenting. And in one of those cases, we're going to look at a little bit later today. Well, I'm very thankful for Pastor Mark Vrogop of College Park Church, who has preached and taught and written extensively about this topic of lament. And his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, was a very helpful resource for me as I was preparing for today. And so after today, if you feel like you want to dig deeper into this idea of biblical lament, I would encourage you to take a look at that book. It's very, very helpful. Let me give you just two quotes from that book. Pastor Vrogop says, Lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. He says, Lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. And I think what he's getting at here is the reality is life is tough. And we're going to have sorrow and we're going to have troubles in this life. And yet, we look forward to the day when we will dwell with God and there will be no more sorrows and there will be no more tears. But in the meantime, lament is a language that helps us navigate the reality of the present with the promise of the future. And as we get into Psalm 88 today, which is a song of lament, we're going to learn some very specific and somewhat surprising truths about how we lament well in the midst of our sorrow and suffering. But before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I am wholly inadequate to do what you've called me to do today, Lord. I want to just preach your word today, Father. This is a a difficult text. It is a dark psalm. And Lord, yet you have so much to teach us today. So Lord, you do that work. May I become less and you become more. Show us your glory in this text, Father. Teach us, Lord, to lament well. Thank you, Father, for giving us a language that allows us to navigate the reality of the life we live with the promise that you have for us for the future. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's get our eyes on Psalm 88. And in your Bible, you may have a title there. Mine says, I cry out day and night before you. And then under that, a subheading. Let me read that subheading that I have in my Bible. Yours may have it as well. It says, Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, 
to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. So I want to focus in on the writer of this song. It's not David. A lot of times we think of the Psalms and we think of David because he wrote many of them. But in this case, it's written by a man by the name of Haman the Ezraite. And we know a little bit about Haman because he shows up in the Old Testament in a couple of different places. It turns out that Haman is the grandson of Samuel. And Haman and his sons are in charge of the music ministry with King, for King David. And apparently Haman is a very wise man because in 1 Kings, the Bible, in speaking about the greatness of Solomon's wisdom, says that Solomon's wisdom exceeded even that of, and it names a couple of guys, and one of them is Haman. So apparently Haman was a gifted man musically, he was a leader, and he was very wise. That's who wrote this song. So with that, I want to start today, and I want to read the entire psalm through, because I think that's going to be important so that we get a sense of the tone and the feel of this psalm. So let's go through this, starting at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders from the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Wow. <laughs> like, what are some words that come to mind as we read that? It's okay. You can participate. What are some words that just come to your mind as we read that? Agony, loneliness, what? Depression. This is, this, there's darkness to this. This is heavy, right? This is heavy. And, and how about that ending? Like, that's the, I don't know about you, but I find myself wanting to turn the page. Like, there's got to be more. Like, where's the epilogue? I don't like the ending. The, the loose ends aren't tied up nicely like we like to find. It's not there. And that fact makes this psalm unique. It's the only lament psalm that doesn't end on a high note of praise to God's glory or a statement of, of God's promises. Let me give you an example. Psalm 35 is a lament psalm. This is how it ends, okay? It's a lament psalm, but it ends this way. Psalm 35, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. 
That's a great ending. That's a great ending to a lament. But there's no ending with this. We're just left longing for some kind of closure. But yet, this psalm has so much to teach us about how we're going to process our sorrow and suffering using the language of lament that's going to lead us to a place of trust and hope in the sovereign God of our salvation. So let's dig in and figure out how that's going to do that. Let's go back to verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So let's stop there for a moment, because Haman is crying out to God in prayer, and I want to make a couple of observations about this prayer. The first is that it's God, capital G, that he's crying out to. Now, that, that may be obvious, but it's important that we point out. First of all, he, he uses God's covenantal name. He says, Yahweh, O Lord. In your English Bible, anytime you're reading the Old Testament, you come across Lord, all caps. That's God's name, Yahweh. See, Haman is crying out to the great I am, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he goes on to say, God of my salvation, Yahweh, God of my salvation. The Jews would refer to God as Savior, God our Savior, because he had on multiple occasions saved them as a people. We know about them, most notably him saving them out of Egypt, out of bondage. And they would say, God our Savior, but he doesn't say that. He says, God of my salvation salvation. He's acknowledging that somewhere along the line, he has experienced very personally God's saving power in his life. The second observation I want to make is that there's desperation in this. We see in verse 1, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. He's using this word cry. This is not just a little prayer, like, I'm going to shoot up a little arrow prayer. Lord, maybe help me here. This is a crying out. As Pastor Joe preached on two weeks ago, there's urgency in his prayer here. He goes on. We're going to see this again in verse 9. Go down to verse 9. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Picture that. Okay, it looks like this. That's a position of need and of desperation. He's crying out, I need you. When my son Luke was a, was a toddler, a little guy, and when he would fall and hurt himself, as toddlers tend to do, he'd get up and, and he would cry out. And, and who do you think he'd cry to? Mama, right? How many dads in here can relate, right? Like, I'm standing right next to you. But mama, but he knew, he knew who to cry out to, who he was going to get comfort from. There's desperation in Haman's crying out. He knows exactly who he's crying out to. The third observation I want to make is there's a persistency in what he's doing. Verse 1, it says, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 8 again. Oh, man, I'm lost. Verse 9, every day I call upon you. Oh, Lord, I spread out my hands to you. And then, if you would, jump with me to verse 13. I'm sorry I'm jumping a little bit here, but this is the structure of the psalm. On three different occasions, he references that he's calling out. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. You see the regularity? You see the rhythm of this? It's day and night. It's daily. It's every morning. It's not like, oh, on Tuesdays, I'm going to call out to you. 
Um, next week, I need to remember to pray about this. There's a consistency and a rhythm and a persistence in his prayer. The last observation is it doesn't appear that he's getting an answer. Verse 2 at the end of it, he says, incline your ear to my cry. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like God's just not responding? Have you ever been there where it's like, not only is not God not responding, I'm not sure he's even listening. That's worse. He's saying, God, incline your ear, lean in. Please, God. Some of you know this feeling. Maybe you are very sure of God's calling in your life. He's called you to a certain career. Maybe he's called you into missions. You're sure of this, and yet as you're pursuing that, you're finding doors closed. In fact, you're finding doors you thought were open getting closed, and you're crying out to God, and it just seems like silence. Maybe the cancer's been in remission for two years, and then the latest scan shows that it's back, and it's metastasized, and you and your family are crying out to the Lord, but radio silence. He's saying, incline your ear to my cry. And this brings us to point number one in the outline. In sorrow and suffering, never stop crying out to God. Why do we need to be reminded of that? I mean, it seems obvious, like, right, in our sorrow and suffering, yeah, sure, I'm going to go to God, but apparently we need to be reminded of this. Why is that? Well, I think there's two parts to that, and they're both linked to this point. I was very specific in choosing this language here. So the first part of it, never stop. We need to be reminded to never stop. Why? Because sometimes the days become weeks, and the weeks might become months, and we don't feel like we're being heard. We might start strong, but we start to despair. Is he even listening to me? And we stop. We discontinue, never stop. And the second part of it is crying out to God. Why is that not obvious? It's because sometimes in the depth of our suffering and our sorrow, it is difficult for us to think about anything beyond ourselves. As we become, as we become overwhelmed, we move into self-preservation mode and we start looking internally, right? And the last thing we want to do is cry out to God. It may be that, you're, you, that, that the pain, that you're suffering from chronic pain, and all you can do is to think about anything other than the pain. The last thing you're thinking about is crying out to God. Maybe the darkness of depression is such that all you can think about in those moments is I have to hurt myself. The last thing you're thinking about doing is crying out to God which is why I think he repeats it on three different occasions, day and night, in the morning, every day I'm crying out to you because we need to be reminded of this. Haman's suffering is real. It's deep. It's dark. And he doesn't appear to be getting an answer, but he keeps on crying out day and night. So this then brings us to the question, if I'm supposed to keep crying out day and night, what does that look like? How does that practically look like? Well, the answer we're going to find in this psalm, I think, is surprising. So let's see what it shows us here. We're going to go to verse 3. Verse 3, 
for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horde of them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. He is using some very strong language. He's using some euphemisms for death here. He feels close to death. You can just feel this heaviness of God upon him. He's overwhelmed. And in verse 8, he says, You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Have you been there? Have you gotten to that point in your sorrow and suffering before? That you're beginning to realize that your friends and family might be starting to distance themselves from you a little bit because of your circumstances? It might be the texts are not being responded to quickly. Maybe eye contact is avoided. It might be just the interactions are less frequent, and when you do have them, they're more surfacy. The writer is there. He feels alone, and he feels abandoned. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from how to cry out to God? Here's what I see. The author of this is complaining. He's complaining. This is the language of complaint. How many of you in here are at least a little bit uncomfortable of complaining to God? None of you? You're good with? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, we don't like complainers, do we? Like, you guys know, you always know that person when you're going to be around them, there's just going to be complaint after complaint after complaint. If you don't know that person, it might be you. <laughs> but this idea of complaining to God just doesn't seem right. And yet we see in the psalm, he's com clearly complaining to God. And when you read through the other psalms of lament, they're full of complaints. And so this is point number two in our outline. It's okay to complain to God. In our sorrow and suffering, it's okay to complain to God. Now, I want to zero in on verse 14, because I think this captures the essence of his complaint. Verse 14. Get there with me. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Haman feels abandoned by God. Now, he's talked about my companions have shunned me. He feels abandoned by God. He so desperately wants God to acknowledge him and to respond to him. He wants communion with God again. But look at that language. Why do you cast my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? He's complaining to him. He's complaining about this situation. And this is important, okay? It's important. This may seem uncomfortable, but it's intentional and right. And here's the key point. Haman is not complaining to other people. And he's not complaining about God. Haman is complaining to God. That's important. When I was with Eli Lilly, I traveled quite a bit, and some of that was international. And nothing brings out raw emotion like air travel. Can I get an amen to that? And many times over the years, I got to witness people complaining, sometimes aggressively, to the nearest airline employee that they could see. For example, we're, we're loading onto the plane. Um, it's the end of a day full of meetings. 
we're getting ready to fly to another country tonight. We've got meetings all the next day. We might have a connection. You're loading up. You're in the middle seat. It's awful. You pull away from the gate, and then you stop, and you just wait, and you're just sitting there, and you're waiting, and eventually they come on and say, oh, we're delayed because of, and you don't listen. Like, what? But the bottom line is you're not taxiing to the runway, and they're sure not pushing you back to the gate. You're just sitting there, waiting and waiting and waiting. And I've seen situations where people take their complaints rather aggressively to the flight attendants. And I'm like, they can't do anything about this. Actually, they could poison your drink. <laughs> Wrong person. Now, if you've got a line to the, to, to the president of the airline, like, take your complaint to them, right? My point is that Haman is not complaining to other people. He's not complaining about God. He's complaining directly to God, the one who he knows can do something about this. And because this is a psalm of lament, apparently complaining is an important part of lament. And in fact, without complaint, there is no lament. There's no need. I want to say this. Interestingly, complaining to God is an act of faith. I want to say that again. Complaining to God is an act of faith. Why would I say that? Don't lose sight of the fact that the author's suffering is intense. And it's prolonged because he says it's, it's from my youth. He feels abandoned by God. Yet in the midst of that, when it's so natural for him to become so self-focused and despondent, he knows that God is the only one that can do something about it, and he keeps crying out to God. He's complaining to the one who can do something about him. That's an act of faith. That's a tough faith. That's a robust faith. And so while complaining is central to the language of lament, it's not the end. It's only part. Lament is much more than complaining. Lament doesn't leave us in our complaints. It's leading somewhere. This is extremely important. So we're going to find out where is lament leading to us as we continue in the text. I want to go back to verse 6. And let's read 6 through 8. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. What word stands out to you that gets repeated time and again in those three verses? You. It's you and your. And he's referring to God. You, God. Your wrath. Haman is putting the responsibility for his suffering directly on God. Let's jump down to verses 16 to 18, and you're going to see it here too. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. We see it again here. And we don't know the exact reason or the nature of his suffering. The text does not make that clear. And I think that's a good thing because it prevents us from making the mistake of saying, that doesn't apply to me. We don't have that luxury here. But here's what we do know. We do know that his suffering is severe. It's extreme. It's prolonged. And we know this. It's from the hand of God. 
It's from the hand of God. And I want to make this as point number three in our outline. In sorrow and suffering, remember that God is sovereign even over your suffering. This is where lament is leading us. See, lament doesn't leave us wallowing in our complaints without hope. It is leading us somewhere. And it leads us to acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. And I want to pause here for a moment, and I want to acknowledge that this is a very difficult reality. This is tough. Because it leads us to have to ask the tough questions. Is God really responsible for my suffering? Like, isn't this Satan? God wouldn't do this to me, would he? But as we look at these verses, it is so clear. Haman says, you, your God, you are responsible. He believes that God is sovereign over his suffering, and he directly places the responsibility with God for his circumstances. So what do we do with that? Like, how do we process that? There's many today that are going to teach and do teach that God has no power over your suffering. And I can understand, right? We can understand why we would go there. Like it feels better that way to say God just doesn't, has decided not to have any control over that because God has got to love. He would never allow, much less ordain my suffering, right? It feels better to think that that's outside of his control. Haman doesn't believe that. And there's nothing in here to suggest that he's wrong. I tread lightly and humbly here because I have not walked through some of the depths of suffering that many of you in this room have. But I want to help us to remember that God is sovereign over our suffering. And the truth of that can bring comfort Because then we know that our suffering is not random. It is not without purpose. Some of you this morning can testify to that. Some of you have been, have have come out of some of the darkest seasons of your life. Some of you are recovering from some of the darkest seasons of your life, clinging to the truth that God is sovereign even over my suffering, and it is not without purpose. See, the God who is sovereign of the universe loves you steadfastly. He has power over our suffering, and therefore there's purpose in it. Because if he had no power over the bringing on of that suffering, why would we believe he has any power to relieve it? Why would we ever even cry out to him? It makes no sense. Haman acknowledges that God is responsible, and he's crying out to God to get rid of it. Haman has hope and trust in the sovereign God of his salvation. This is ultimately where lament is leading us. Yes, we complain, but it's leading us somewhere. It's leading us from the current reality of our circumstances, which are difficult, and they're dark, and they seem prolonged, and it's leading us to trust and hope in the sovereign God of our eternal salvation. That's point number four. Remember, in sorrow and suffering, remember God is sovereign, even over your suffering. I already said that. Trust and hope in God. Trust and hope in God. That is our fourth point. In sorrow and suffering, trust and hope in God. Now, that sounds all good. Like, oh, good. We ended on a high note. Don't pack up yet, by the way. I know. When I take that fourth point, I like want to pack up. We got more to say. Because you should be asking, that's nice, but I don't see it. 
Like we read this psalm and it's dark. We read the psalm, it's difficult. Where's it at? I want to show you three places in here where I find hope in this psalm. The first one is in verse one. O Lord God of my salvation. Again, he is calling out to God in a very personal way. Remember, Haman is a wise and gifted man. I want to show this quote on the screen. W.S. Plummer says this. The scriptures pronounce the author of this song a very wise man, yet when plunged into sorrow, he has no resources left, but such as the humblest child of God. He can plead God's covenant. He can give himself up to prayer. That is all. Haman cries out, his hope is in the Lord, the God of his salvation. The second place I see hope in here is a little bit more surprising. And so we're going to look at, in the midst of this text, Haman starts asking some rhetorical questions to God that are a little bit edgy. They can come across as a little bit sarcastic, but let's read them. Verse 10 is where we're going. Verse 10, Haman cries out, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Again, he's, these rhetorical questions have got an edginess to them. But what I want you to see is that Haman is actually pronouncing attributes of God back to him, truths that he knows about God, even though he's not feeling them right now. Let's look at it again. We're going to put them on the screen as we go through them. Back to verse 10. These are, these are attributes of God. He's claiming back to him in these questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? God must be a God who works wonders. Do the departed rise up to praise you? God, you are worthy of praise. Verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? God, you are a God of steadfast love. Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? God, you are faithful. Verse 12, are your wonders known in the darkness? Again, you're a God of wonders. Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? God, you are righteous. This is clearly a prayer of a man who has not lost faith in the God of his salvation. He is demonstrating hope and trust in God in this. Finally, the last place I would show you hope in this psalm is that the entire psalm is God-centered. Don't forget, don't lose the, don't lose the, the, the context here. His suffering is significant. It's been prolonged. He thinks God has abandoned him. And yet, throughout all, he keeps crying out to God day and night, in the morning, every day, I'm spreading out my hands to you. In 15 of the 18 verses of the psalm, he uses the words, you or your. He's crying out to God. It's very God-centered. There's trust and hope throughout this thing. The whole thing is focused on God. And yet, it ends so suddenly. Let's go back to verse 18 at the very end. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The last word of the psalm is dark of darkness. And that last part could be in, can be interpreted as my only companion is now darkness, or darkness is my closest friend. So he's been crying out to the Lord. He's put his trust in the Lord. He's acknowledging God is sovereign, and yet at the end, he's not getting an answer. No, no answer was given here. 
And that's real life, right? Like, sometimes we don't get the answer. Sometimes the sorrow and the suffering lingers. Sometimes the darkness and depression doesn't lift easily. Sometimes we never get the answer we so desperately desire. Well, today we're going to close our service with a time of communion. Again, don't pack up yet. We've got some more territory to cover, but I want to pause and say if you're serving communion today, if you could go ahead and make your way to the back to prepare for that. And while they're doing that, um, the, the worship team's going to start coming out here. And I know this time can be a bit disruptive. It's awkward. People are moving. But I want to I want to keep you focused. Keep your eyes up here. Let's stay focused because we've left this in a very heavy place. And that's been very intentional. Because even though Haman didn't get an answer to his crying out, clearly his hope and trust is in the sovereign God, his Savior. We, too, can have hope in God in the midst of our sorrow and suffering. Because you know what? We know something that Haman didn't know. In fact, we know someone who Haman didn't know. We know Jesus. Jesus lived this psalm. Do you see Jesus in this psalm? The prophet Isaiah, in prophesying about the future Messiah, spoke these words. Again, a thousand years before Jesus, Isaiah speaks these words. He's speaking about Jesus from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom mid hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Do you see Jesus in the psalm? He was, he was betrayed by one of his closest companions to the authorities. On the night he was arrested, he was abandoned by those closest to them. They would later deny him. They set up a mock trial. They falsely accused him. They convicted him. They put him on a cross where he felt the entire wrath of God. And as those looked on to him in that moment, he had become a horror to them. And as his hands are stretched out, as he's breathing his last, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. It's a psalm of lament. Jesus was lamenting on the cross. He would die on that cross, completely cut off from God. Do you see Jesus in this psalm? I want to invite the ushers to come on forward. As they come forward, they'll start going. You can go ahead and start uh, distributing the elements. What I would ask, the worship team's going to play. And um, as the elements come by, I'm just going to ask you to take this time to reflect, to pray, to think about those final moments of Jesus' life as we prepare to take communion together. Go ahead and stand up with me as we close out. So no matter how difficult your circumstances are, no matter how long or pretty long the suffering that you've experienced, Jesus has been there. He has lived it. He knows it. He has experienced it personally. And like Haman, Jesus did not get an answer to his crying out. That is, until the third day. Because on the third day, God raised him from the dead. On the third day, he conquered death. 
Haman asks the question in the psalm. He says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Guess what? We have an answer to that now. The answer is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can now come to this psalm and know the question has been answered for us. We now know that God is our Savior. He has saved us by His grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not anything that we do. It's nothing that we've earned. He just did that for us out of His love for us. It is His grace that did that for us. And so now we can come to the psalm and we find the eternal hope in this psalm. The question has been answered. And those that die who are in Christ will rise again and they will praise God because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. Our answer is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And lament is a language that's been given to us by the Lord to allow us to navigate the reality of our current sorrow and suffering and lead us to hope and trust in the sovereign God of our eternal salvation. So let's raise our voices together and sing praises to the God of our salvation.